Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com which is spelled s-u-d-i-o sweden.com and simply put in the code d-t-d when purchasing a pair of headphones i need to remind you that we are part of the agora podcast network it's a network of some 25 independently produced podcasts so why don't you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and um, go and search out a brand new podcast for your podcasting ears. This month, our podcast of the month is Beyond the Big Screen by Stephen Guerra. So if you want to know the true stories behind your favourite movies, the real facts and the background are often much more interesting and complex than you might think. Um, Stephen interviews people who are incredibly passionate about a specific film or a genre. They are great interviews. So why don't you take a listen to Behind the Big Screen on a podcatcher of your choice on with the show and happy 2018 this was not the show that you were supposed to get i was supposed to have ready for you the excellent david petrucia narrating the life of teddy roosevelt but if you are a listener who is also part of the 10 american presidents facebook group you will know that i uh, somehow ruined uh, my recording with David doing the life of Teddy Roosevelt last year so we're having to re-record it hopefully that should be with you by President's Day however me doing a little bit of vanity searching on the interweb today I bumped into an old show that I hosted some three and a half years ago I was a guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour one of my favourite podcasts and it's run by a guy called Clay Jenkinson. What Clay does is he assumes the persona 
of uh, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, and answers questions, and those questions could be related to the writing of the uh, American Declaration of Independence or, or whatever, but it can be, uh, it can be in character, uh, explaining the world of the Founding Fathers, or Jeffersonian politics, or sometimes he tries to make sense out of contemporary American politics through a Jeffersonian eye. I fell in love with this podcast four or five years ago, and it really helped inform and explain to me um, American politics, um, from a theoretical point of view anyway. Uh, It was a great honour to be asked to uh, become a host of the show, uh, because I love everything about it. I love the fact that it's a very clever genre piece. It was history and it was politics uh, done in a very intelligent but kooky way. And I love the civility. I love the manners of the show. Um, so I did the show, did two episodes, and I've never been invited back on. And um, to say that I was disappointed is kind of putting it mildly. Um, the feedback which I got from David Swenson, who is uh, the producer and the co-creator of the show um, was incredibly positive but I think I was too controversial Um, I think I ruffled Clay's feathers which is something I didn't really at all mean to do Um, but I am a British person looking at American politics from the outside Um, so let's say some of my questions were a little bit more pointed and and anyway um I've never been asked back on, and as I said, that is something which is um, gives me a certain amount of um, hurt. Would be overstating it, but I love the show. So, and I suppose in, in my heart of hearts, uh, me and Clay Jenkinson were going to become best buddies or something or another. And I was going to go up to the barn in, in, in Bismarck at some point and uh, high five and uh, go and take him out for a beer. Anyway, that has not proven to be the case. But I am incredibly proud of the show. So I thought, you know what, why not? Let's just put it out for you, the listener, now. So at least you do have some 10 American presidents content. You know, I am speaking to a president, the third president of the United States. Um, so it, it, it's very legitimate in terms of the remit of this podcast anyway. There you go. That's me. Have a listen to the show. But also, when you've listened to it, go and subscribe to the Thomas Jefferson Hour because whether they have me on or not, again, um, it's still a brilliant podcast. The other thing to say just before I go is um, why not head over to Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and write us a review for 10 American Presidents and uh, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is the podcast edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This is a really interesting program. A man named Royfield Brown, who's a digital strategist and a podcaster from the U.K., uh, has uh, offered to be the guest host on the Jefferson Hour, and here he is. And in this program, he starts off with a kind of a monologue explaining everything to Mr. Jefferson that has gone wrong with America, how America is really not the Jeffersonian republic that Jefferson had in mind, but a kind of a vicious world empire and a bully and a nation of great inequalities of wealth and a pathetic health care delivery system and so on and so forth. There's a pretty round opening indictment of America of the 21st century with some generosity towards Jefferson. This is not exactly what you had in mind, is it, Mr. J? And then there's a conversation in which I, as Thomas Jefferson, attempt to, to defend America against a pretty severe 21st century critic. And of course, It's a pretty difficult thing to do for a lot of different reasons. Jefferson's belief was that America would be the most extraordinary, peace-loving, justice-based, happy and enlightened nation that ever existed in human history as long as it was an agrarian nation. And I think Jefferson would be pretty disappointed with what America has become in the 21st century. But it's always easier to say that of oneself or one's own country than it is to hear it from a foreign national looking from the outside in. This is a provocative program, a fascinating program. I think you'll find it interesting in character and maybe even more interesting out of character. At any rate, it's the new look of the Thomas Jefferson Hour uh, made possible by the World Wide Web and the digital revolution. Royfield Brown, you can find him at Royfield, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, on Twitter and follow him in a number 
of ways. If you like this program, tell everyone you know. If you have in mind guest hosts for the program or subjects that we ought to talk about, questions you'd like us to answer, you can write to us. Look for my e-blasts. They're on my Facebook page, on the Jefferson Fan Site page, uh, Facebook page, on the Jefferson Hour Facebook page, and on our our home website, jeffersonhour.com. You can see the archived e-blasts, and there will be lots more of them. And in fact, you can suggest topics for them. Oh, I'm just thrilled about the new feel, the new direction of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I hope you are too. And if you can help us by sending us generous amounts of your hard-earned cash, we promise to use that money to grow the program and not to line our pockets with garden peas or tomatoes. So listen now to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with host Royfield Brown of the UK in a savage attack on the principles and achievement of the United States in the 21st century in a lame defense by the third president of the United States. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Royfield Brown. I am a producer of many podcasts, and it's my great pleasure to guest host on the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Hello, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, sir. Mr. Jefferson, I'm a loyal subject of Queen Elizabeth II, and when I look at... The America, which has developed after some almost 200 years after your death, I see a country that on many levels is without equal. The world listens to your music, it enjoys your other entertainments. And I'm speaking to you through wondrous instruments that have been created by American ingenuity. Your soldiers are posted on hundreds of bases throughout the world. America is indeed a colossus. America is the First Nation. I'm currently having my holiday in San Francisco and being here I feel a great energy when I walk around the streets. But Mr Jefferson, this is not your America is it? It's not the empire of liberty, civility or political renewal or even wealth. And and I say that sir because compared to just about every other country in the developed world, by every indices, I'll put it to you sir your vision of America has failed, or was at least never realised. You wanted no entanglements with foreign powers. American troops are across the globe. Your vaunted political system that you helped frame is not the envy of the world the way that you imagined. No one comes to Washington to study how your political system works. Americans kill each other at a rate which is without measure throughout the world, developed or not some 20,000 a year. Uniquely amongst the major nations of the world, you let your poor suffer the misfortune of poverty by dint of genetic lottery, location or race, and then you ram this home by preventing them to have free health care, an inalienable right for the rest of the planet. You have more poor as a percentage of the population. You are the most unhealthiest of all the developed nations of the world. When I look at your ideals when drafting the Declaration of Independence and studying your writings, in many respects I see Canada, the other America. And I saw a t-shirt just last week. It said, a Canadian, an unarmed American with health care. What do you say to that, sir? Well, welcome to the free world, sir. I don't agree, of course, with all that you have said about my beloved country. But even if you are saying what you perceive to be the truth, you are welcome here. And here in the United States, we cherish dissent and the views of others looking at us. It gives us a a superb mirror of our own culture. I will say this much, that the United States in the 21st century is not very similar to the one that I wish to create in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And I would be disturbed by many of the trends towards militarism a class system, international intervention, etc., even a semi-monarchical presidency. So there are many things which you point to which would trouble me also, but whenever an American is criticized by someone from another place, uh, we tend to close ranks and to defend that which America still does wonderfully, which is to represent opportunity and freedom on an unprecedented scale. So I'm happy to talk about any of these themes that you wish. You are certainly welcome, and I take no offense at your severe criticisms of my republic. My criticisms need to be tempered by the fact that I'm, in many ways, very much uh, an American file. I, 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 
admire very many things about your culture and and your country sir um as i've kind of hinted at before um not only does the world dance to american music you know i love american music and and entertainment and there is has to be said that somebody like me who is british when you come to america you do feel a palpable energy but i wonder when you talk about freedom what is american freedom because i'm british and i feel free um when i go to canada canadians feel equally free but it seems that you americans seem to think that you have an ownership and a monopoly on the word freedom and i just would like to investigate that a little bit more because when i think of freedom i think of a freedom from like a freedom from poverty a a freedom from closed thinking and i'm very much a student of american political debate but out of all the major western countries i would say that political debate is narrowest in america because of your vaunted constitution and declaration of independence and bill of rights Well, I wouldn't say that our freedoms are narrowed by those superb documents. I only wrote one of them, uh, the Declaration of Independence in the spring and early summer of 1776. Uh, Mr. Madison was the primary uh, creator of the Constitution of the United States. He didn't actually draft the language, but he was the author of the Bill of Rights and and those three documents it seems to me are three of the most important documents in the history of human freedom in any country. And I should remind you that I, although of course I was a proud American, I regarded myself as a citizen of the world, sir, and that the ideas that we articulated beginning in 1776 are not just for the people of the United States. They're not just for the people of the Western Hemisphere. We were discovering truths that are embedded deep in the human heart and in human aspiration. They're part of natural law. and they are the aspirations of all people on earth and i dare say that because of those documents of 1776 1787 and 1791 the declaration the constitution and the american bill of rights we have inspired countries all over the world to follow in our example to take up the little flame that we lit on the 4th of july 1776 including great britain britain i think you will freely admit would be a less enlightened country in the 21st century had it not been for the profound challenge issued to it by the revolution of the United States in 1776 and our founding documents which picked up the best threads of anglo-european thought but took them to a much higher level than the british would otherwise have achieved well a lot of your great philosophical thinkers were were either scottish or uh, you know or at least british so yes we will take claim on that sir but when we talk about um your um documents which have indeed have lit uh, lit up the world in terms of independence movements for the for the last 200 years it's somewhat sad then to look at what has become of american political discourse where it it appears that your government has a lack of movement and your politicians have a lack of true three thinking in terms of let's say from an enlightenment point of view because of these documents they almost seem hindbound to adhere to them and then when one listens to american political debate and commentary and there's people like rush limbar it's very hard to associate that with the ideals that you stood for mr jefferson i hear you of course but let me say this much i hope that the american people would be the best educated people on earth and the best educated people in the history of the world and i think one mistake that the united states has made has not been to keep up with education uh, the united states has fallen behind the educational standards of some of the rest of the world both in the discipline of our students and and the you know, the free thinking and the advancement of our curriculum and so i think one arena that has created the disappointment that you look to has been a failure of the united states to educate everybody 
up to his capacity to create not only ideal citizens but something like utopian human beings who are capable of self-government and self-restraint. So that's one part of this that I will concede to you. I also remind you that in my writings, and I hope you have had a chance to look at them, I argue that we should renew the United States once every 19 years by tearing up the basic documents of American liberty and the constitutional structure of the country and starting fresh. I knew that any country becomes hidebound if it clings to the documents of its past and looks to tradition for wisdom about events that are unfolding in the world. There are new technologies, new demographics, uh, new social structures, new habits of the heart, and every dynamic society finds fundamental ways to renew itself. When I wrote that letter to James Madison in 1787 saying that the earth belongs to the living and therefore there can be no perpetual constitution and therefore we should tear up our constitution once per generation, which I worked out to be about 19 years, he did not agree with me and the American people have not accepted that essential code of self-renewal. So I will take your point that the United States in some respects has has been diminished from its founding ideals. But I do not despair. I'm an optimist and I believe that there can be national renewal and when that national renewal comes, we will not only still be the envy of the world in popular culture, in music, in lifestyle, in movies, etc., but we will again take our, our natural place as the most enlightened template for the rest of the world. So you do concede then that you have lost that position, sir? I'm not conceding your pessimism. I'm conceding that my vision of America required a very deep discipline in education and self-renewal and it required our citizens to realize that the commonwealth is more important than the individual life. And in some sense, the American people have followed Mr. Hamilton's path and other paths rather than my own. I couldn't control the future, sir. I could only envision an America and hope that my vision was sufficiently beautiful and realizable that people would volunteer to pursue it. But if the American people have pursued other visions instead and have been diminished from those enlightenment ideals, I I take no credit for that. I don't think there was anything poisonous or contradictory in the basic outlook that I offered. And I still believe very strongly that the United States continues to be the exemplar of the world. It's just a slightly fractured one. It's somewhat ironic then, sir, that you are held up to be almost the ideal American political thinker if you look round at your America now, your experiment, and you see little of your beliefs and ideals truly lived out, and it's actually Mr. Hamilton, your rival, you think it's his vision of America which has actually been realized. I think Americans still deep in their heart, and I think you will acknowledge this, that Americans deep in their hearts still have the aspiration to be the world's most enlightened people. Mr. Jefferson, we need to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. This week, I'm speaking to Mr. Jefferson about America today and the failure of the American Revolution. Mr. Jefferson, when I look at your writings 
and your ideal of the yeoman farmer who best exemplifies civic virtue you know away from the corrupting influence of cities and government I look at the sum total of that now and it's led to patriots like Clive and Bundy who are backed up by guns who can claim to be sentinels of liberty whilst not paying their taxes. Surely the yeoman farmer example of the true American has led to extremist policies. I disagree fundamentally with that. I thought you were going to say that we would be better off if in your time 97% of us were family farmers as 97 or so percent of us were small farmers in my time. I cannot allow you to besmirch the Homeric and Virgilian code of the agrarian paradise. I believe that those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. If ever he had a chosen people and a nation of small farmers, a nation of yeoman farmers or even peasant farmers, is invariably the most virtuous and independent of all nations. And I see no evidence to contradict that whatsoever. What's happened is that in your time, uh, agriculture has changed dramatically. There have been technological and capitalist revolutions in the way our food supply is created. And there are very few Jeffersonian farms left in the United States. And people like Mr. Bundy are not exemplars of the agrarian path at all. He's an ill-educated uh, outspoken, um, tax-resisting um, ruffian who has entered into a compact. He sounds to me, sir, like a true American patriot then. Not at all. He entered into a, a contract with the United States government to run cattle on land owned by the people. I'm the creator of the public domain, so I know a fair amount about this. And the U.S. government manages certain lands that were never deeded out and they've entered into a contract with this fellow that he would pay X dollars per cow-calf unit to run on public land, and he's had the advantage of that grass and that water, and yet he won't pay his bills. He has broken the most valuable of all American commercial codes, the code of honesty and contract. Sir, you, you call him an ill-educated ruffian. Yes, sir. But I'm sure if I was to ask Mr. Bundy who his American hero would be, your name would be up there. That may be true. You know, I'm taken out of context by almost everybody who has a grudge. You know, but I earned my right to be uh, a skeptic about government because I spent 15 years reading 10 or 12 hours per day. I sacrificed my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to be a revolutionary at a time when it was very unlikely that we would win the Revolutionary War. I know a little bit about revolution, and I know that the United States in your time is the best-fed, best-clothed, most mobile, wealthiest, most materially successful civilization that it has ever existed in the world, and the United States government has offered its public lands at very favorable rates to sturdy ranchers, and if those ranchers refuse to pay their bills, they should be removed, or their cattle at least, from those public lands. I, I don't mind that this man invokes me. I am a revolutionary, and I said I like a little revolution now and then, but I don't think that he has, uh, he has thought through his rebellious stance. What precisely is his sense of government tyranny? What exactly is his discontentment? Has he written an essay? Has he established an institute? Does, does he have a, a group of followers who have followed John Locke or Rousseau or Voltaire or, as you like to say, the members of the Scottish Enlightenment to a consistent view of life in the United States? He has very many followers, sir, and he might not have committed his thoughts uh, to print in the way that you have but in the last 200 years since your death technology has moved on and he has a platform on YouTube and his words and his thoughts have been disseminated not just throughout the United States but throughout the world. So you admire him? I absolutely do not admire him but I look at him and I say he's a uniquely American phenomenon. You do not have a British equivalent to Clive and Bundy or a German or a French or an Italian or any of the other countries and nations that you might wish to um, equate America as as being a part of the same kind of cultural milieu that it is because of um, your American vision that we have 
characters like Mr. Bundy. I'll have to accept some of that, I believe, in honesty. I think you make a, a good point that that is indeed an insight, that that the United States is different from Great Britain and European nations be in, in part because of the volatility of the population and its willingness to flare up in protest and to denounce its national government and to feel a deep, almost derision towards federal authority. I think that's built deep into the American character and I have to take some responsibility for that, as you rightly say, because of all of the founding fathers, with the possible exception of Thomas Paine, I'm the one who wrote and spoke this way. You know, If you say that, uh, God forbid, we should be more than uh, 10 or 20 years without an armed rebellion somewhere in America, and if you say the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, that is its natural manure, you shouldn't be surprised if freedom-loving people, for good reasons or bad reasons, take up that rallying cry and continue that habit. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's a bad thing. This man may be a fool. He may be misguided. He may be breaking a a contract which he freely signed. But I like the spirit of resistance in the American people. I think it's a good habit to keep our government on the defensive and always to ask, why am I being taxed? And why am I being taxed at this rate? Why am I being regulated? And who created these regulations? Was I represented adequately when these regulations were enacted? Why is my government stronger in Washington than my government in Richmond or in another state capital? I think those are good questions. Of course, there will be abuses. Of course, it will be misunderstood by people who are operating merely out of selfish or self-interested motives. But for the most part, I like that spirit of resistance in the American people. And, and I mean no disrespect, but I would pity the British people if after their long tradition beginning with the Magna Carta, they have become docile and live under a monarchy without sputtering. Sir, I don't think that we are docile in Britain. But when I look at con- something which is happening in contemporary British politics is that Scotland could well become independent. And it should, sir, because Scotland is an individual sovereignty. Well, when I look at that weighty issue, the fact that we have been able, uh, people both sides of the border in Britain, been able to sit down and talk about it rationally, I then contrast that with some of the things which you've just said, that almost inherent in your vision of America is generational revolution and conflict. And you didn't just say that you should question the the government, but you should be hostile towards the the, um, the intent of government. And then when you have this inbuilt hostile intent backed up by guns, you have a situation whereby at the fringes of your experiment, sir, your country is disproportionately violent, disproportionately disagreeable, and a very alien place to the rest of the world. Well, I think that the rest of the world may be listening to caricatures of American habits. I think you may be stereotyping the United States. You know, there are 340 million Americans. 99.9% of them are quiet people who live according to the rule of law, who treat their neighbors with respect, who pay their taxes willingly and on time, who are polite and civil Uh, who are quietly going about the business of feeding their family and building homes. Uh, I think that the vast majority of the American people are identical to the people of Great Britain, except they're happier, uh, they're freer, they're more mobile, uh, they have access to more of the fruits of life. And even if you want to discount the comparison with the the people of Great Britain, I'm perfectly willing to, to set that aside. The American people like their system, and I think you are caricaturing it, and you're looking at uh, scattered acts of chaos and violence and aggrandizing them as if this is the habit. I doubt that you have been assaulted on the streets of San Francisco, have you? I haven't, sir. But what I have seen in the streets of San Francisco, and again, I, I need to qualify this by saying that I've chosen to come to San Francisco because I've never been to the west coast of your great nation 
and for me this is an amazing city in terms of its embracing of um diversity i see rainbow flags almost in equal measure than i can see the stars and stripes so this is an amazing city but i walked yesterday um along a road called mission which is a very long road um which takes me all the way into the center of san francisco and Mr. Jefferson, I've never seen such urban poverty as I saw on that street. I saw a lady um, rooting through a bin. I saw numerous people with signs saying that they were ex-vets sat in wheelchairs. Now, I've travelled extensively throughout the world. I've been to great cities and cities with, with faded grandeur, like Naples. Um, I've been to Eastern Europe. I've been to Minsk. I've never seen such naked displays of urban poverty. And I just would like to ask you, Mr. Jefferson, how this is possible in such a rich and powerful country that Americans can be happy that they have the highest rates of wealth inequality in the developed world? Well, there's a lot uh, to say about that. I want to take your question very seriously. So let me say, first of all, that it's appalling that there should be that sort of poverty and homelessness in the United States, a nation of such vast wealth. And I believe is, is that one of the problems is uh, is creating urban centers like San Francisco or New York or Philadelphia or Los Angeles that concentrate human misery. You know, my vision, as you know, was to diffuse the population evenly across the broad landscape. And if the people were living in villages and on farms, I dare say there wouldn't be the kind of grinding urban poverty that you speak of. I saw it in my own time in Paris in great degree and in London to a certain degree when I visited your country in 1786. And so I think part of it is uh, an almost inevitability about urban life. And I think if you were being completely honest, you would know that urban life in Paris or urban life in Berlin or urban life in London has its own problems with street mobs and disease and poverty and, and, and class struggle. But the United States has Mr. it in greater measure. Mr. Jefferson, uh, forgive me, just let me jump in. I've spent a lot of time in Canada. I, two of my children live just outside Toronto. And what is marked when I walk around Toronto is I do not see that level of overt urban poverty. You, you do not see it, sir. And I contrast Canada with America for that reason. I'm going to put Europe to one side. Let us just deal with the new world. Canadians look and almost sound identical to Americans, but I challenge any American to walk around Vancouver or Toronto, or Montreal, or Quebec City, and to see the level of urban deprivation that you can see in many areas in the United States. This isn't just the case of cities and their concentration of humanity breeds poverty. There is something uniquely American about this, sir. Well, we were born in the Enlightenment, in the era of Adam Smith and Adam Smith's wealth of nations uh, and, a, and a deep commitment to um, liberty and uh, antagonism towards taxes and regulation in government have been centerpieces of the American way of life. And this comes, I suppose, at a certain price. In other words, we, I think it could be said that the United States has made a sort of a gamble or made a, a bargain with itself that we were going to create the least centrally regulated economy in the world and hoped that that would generate uh, wealth in unprecedented uh, proportions and that there would be such opportunity that there would be full employment and that the, the basic wants of the entire population would be met. And as you know, in the European model and, and also the Canadian model – is more centralized, more socialist in some respects. And because of that, the American people find it less attractive as a system. The American, I think, is the person who believes that he may be poor now, 
but through the um, advent of hard work and some luck, he might become wealthy, and he's not eager to share that wealth should it come, and he believes that there's such an abundance of resources and opportunity in the United States that any able-bodied person should be able to fend for himself. You may disagree with that as a principle, but I think you will agree that that characterizes the nature of the American economic experiment. Let's move on, sir, to the separation of church and state. You said that this was the best method to keep government free of religious disputes and religion free of corruption by government. From the outside, because I am a night souder in your marvellous country, sir, and I look at the decisions that your Supreme Court makes, and it seems that there is a pandering towards Christianity, and especially when I look at the town of Greece versus Galloway. And then, again, I contrast that with all the other countries that I've travelled to in the world, and there is no other developed country in the world where Christianity plays such a large and central part in its political discourse, with a possible exception of Italy, that is. Sir, can you imagine a President of the United States saying that he or she wasn't even Christian? There is no real separation, sir, is there? of church and state? Well, there ought to be, of course. I'm the author of that doctrine, first in the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty of 1786, and then in my letter to the Danbury Baptists of January 1st, 1802, in which I said that my reading of the First Amendment is that it erects a wall of separation between church and state. I would hope that the wall of separation in the 21st century would be higher than it was in my time, because at least in my time, one could argue that Christianity was the overwhelming favorite of the American population. But in your time, uh, as you as you rightly say, the, 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 the diversity of the population of the United States is such that it would be ludicrous to say that the people are uh, essentially Christian. Uh, almost every religion on earth is now uh, represented in some form or other within the various states of, of the United States. So I, I do think that there has been some slippage in this area, and I'm sorry to see it because I believe that the more you separate church and state, the happier uh, your population will be and the more people will feel free to worship the God of their choice. Could you see a situation whereby somebody could seriously run to become the president of the United States and say that they were a Hindu or that they just didn't even believe in a supreme being? I don't think so. I think if I read the American mood correctly as the 21st century begins, there is a de facto Christian establishment. And, you know, the Constitution deliberately forbids test oaths, uh, which had been one of the banes of your country, Great Britain, uh, you know, making people um, commit themselves to the Anglican doctrine and the Anglican system before they could be allowed to vote or hold public office. We rightly um, forbade test oaths in the United States, but there's a sort of de facto test oath, I believe, in which if a presidential candidate said, I'm an atheist, or I'm a deist, or I'm a Hindu, he would unlikely uh, be elected to high office in this country. Mr. Jefferson, there is so much more that I'd like to talk to you about, but we need to take a short break. And then when we come back, I'll be speaking to Clay Jenkinson, the voice behind Mr. Jefferson. You are listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkinson, the creator of the Jefferson Hour, a.k.a. the third president of the United States. And I'm joined this week by that European ruffian, Royfield Brown. Royfield is a digital strategist who founded MyVillage.com in the United Kingdom. He's also uh, the host of a podcast called Mid-Atlantic that looks at U.S. and U.K. politics. He writes on culture and politics for the Huffington Post. He's now visiting San Francisco in California. Welcome, Royfield. Thank you for having me on. So, you know, here we, you contact us and you want to be a host on the Jefferson Hour and all you do is beat up on America. I mean, we're going to, we're going to get, we're going to get hate mail. You better get offshore before this thing is broadcast. You come here and you, you say America is, is obese. It's frivolous. It's, uh, it's ruthless towards its poor. It's a, it's a bullying nation. You have bases all over the world. There's more mayhem and violence in the United States than any other country. And you want a fair hearing? I th- first off um you should apologize I think, I, to the people I've of the united states a couple of my statements by saying i'm a big fan of america yeah but um, you like our you like our music and and our hot dogs but you n- n- you hate n- this country you you hate no i us. don't sir and this this is a fundamental flaw of of um, you know that many we don't Americans like to be have. criticized no you, that you us Brits, we can take it. Somebody yeah, could come over to Britain for five hundred years. Somebody could come over to Britain and say, "How the hell can you have an old lady with a, a metal hat on who is the queen, and you're not a citizen, you're a subject?" Now you can't even go back to Britain. You've just said <laughs> awful things about your Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Are, are you just a professional naysayer? Uh, absolutely, absolutely not. Arguably, I'm an America. I'm a professional lover of many things American, not just. Uh, what, do, what do you like best about this country? Okay. I take what, I take you what? seriously. This you here was the problem for me, Royfield. I'm Jefferson, and so I'm not. I'm not going to be able to grant you your attack on the United States. But as a citizen, as Clay Jenkinson, a humanities scholar, I see. Let's just pay a germ of validity to your argument about the United States, that this country has fallen profoundly from its Republican beginnings and that the dream of America, best articulated by, say, Thomas Jefferson, seems a little threadbare to anyone looking in from the outside. You could say that the only people who are still convinced by the American software are the Americans themselves. I get that. And I think that your criticisms are, you know, are just in that sense. But so tell us, not just in popular culture and in the zany energy of America, what do you like about the American experiment? I what I love is the sense that anything is possible. 
the first time I came over to the United States was 1996 uh, to visit my grandfather who was at that point he was living in New Orleans he passed away a couple of years ago now and I it was only when I got here that I really absolutely understood the physical size of America I, I I'm a total I'm a total uh, lover of maps uh, but it's only when I physically got to New Orleans and my grandfather said we had to travel um, 25 miles to go and get something I said but that's crazy and I've, I realized the vastness of your country and literally everybody that I met because I'm black but I have this English accent number one they fell over themselves but then secondly they were incredibly polite so I got a an amazing dose of civility um, but also energy I could feel there is an energy and, and being British and being English because I, I call myself English now as opposed to British for the, for the most part yes um, we are on the whole a very nice sort of people so you've praised our geographic size for which we can do nothing and actually you said we were vile imperialists for taking all that land in the first place but okay so you like the geography it is a very beautiful very big country are, are, are you sir in earnest with your critique of America that in terms of its loudly self-proclaimed value system, the United States has, be some, has become somewhat contemptible in the world's eyes? No, I, it, it's much more nuanced than that. I think each nation has its own myths that it likes to tell itself. The problem is with America is that it can't compare and contrast itself with other countries because of the the way that you became independent and because of the important and you know historically important documents that you created to justify your independence from the crown of Great Britain that has almost led to you um, kind of atrophying uh, politically that it's hard for you then to say hmm the French educational system, for argument's sake, might be a good one. We might need to be able to adopt some of those measures. Or um, the British Health Service has some merits about it. In in Britain, we suffered from a similar thing in the later years of empire. And I can remember in the 1970s, when I first started going to school, people would say in Britain routinely, we have the best educational system in the world. We have the best health system in the world. It actually wasn't the case, but the difference was that we didn't have these documents chiseled in stone, which prevented us from actually saying, actually, there could be lessons that we could learn from other countries. When I look at America, I see energy, I see innovation. You know, I'm speaking to you. The, 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 the gentleman who is seen as being the, um, the godfather of the internet, Tim Berners-Lee, he's English. However, the internet feels like a very American space because of the ingenuity and the genius of American companies. So let me ask this question. It's a very serious question. Um, and I'm, I'm in no sense trying to, to be defensive about the United States. Do, is it possible that, that the great creative energy of America, which I, I don't think there's anybody in the world who doesn't acknowledge it, that there's something just spectacular about the creative juice and the and 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 it's in the whimsicality and the free range of the American creative intellect. Is it possible that the price of that is also a, a weak social structure? You know, by any European standard, no national health care system, no cradle to grave welfare system, uh, a very partial investment in higher education for the masses. Is it possible that if we were more enlightened if we if we had come along in the european model of cradle to grave um a kind of a cradle to grave uh, commonwealth view would that change the energy of america or would it just make it better it would change it a little but i think significantly it would make little and no difference because i think the the thing which america has going for it in terms of boundless optimism is just the physical size of your country you know, in Britain, uh, there was no going west, you know, because Britain is just so small. England is so small. Whereas um, I think that it's less to do with looking after the poor, giving them a safety net or free health care. You know, the energy of America 
is the fact that it's just so big that I can just take myself off uh, in 300 miles direction and go somewhere else, whereas you can't do that in Europe. So, and, you know, and, and when we look at ingenuity, I love Formula One, which is, you know, the, the fast racing cars. Uh, the, the, the most engineer, the engineering excellence of Formula One is English throughout the world, you know, that we have a, a specific genius there. Many tech companies like Skype was um, a an Estonian company. So don't get me wrong, there is a, an absolute burgeoning energy, which the whole rest of the world is, feels palpably when, when it looks at America. But there are other countries around the world where there is lots of uh, creativity and ingenuity and and you know to do with business and creativity so no it's not because of your weak relatively weak central government and and lack of um social in inverted commas care you know i think american ingenuity comes from the size of america so if the if the united nations or the united states congress called you royfield brown and said you're now the the dictator of America. Here are the three things you can do. Three things to change America from the, the the sort of paralyzed state that it's in into a much greater nation. What are the three things you would do? I would take away finance from politics as much as I can. I wrote an article some years ago um, during the last uh, American election, contrasting campaign finance in the states with britain and australia and uh, paraphrase me on this but um a british mp when running for parliament can only spend something like forty thousand pounds an australian mp can only spend a a figure like twenty thousand uh australian dollars i think that the, the the most important thing that america could do would be to remove the fact that your politicians spend 50% of their time raising money because they are in hock to the wants and the needs of business more than they are their constituents. So that's the first thing. So fair enough. Number one would be what we call campaign finance reform. Number two. Number two, um, I would, um, again, I, I am European. I can't help it. But there needs to be better uh, system of of healthcare and let's just put Obamacare completely to one side but if somebody just happens to be born into poverty through no wit of, of their own the very fact that they can't even then access basic health care um, seems to me like you're punishing that person twice over so a single payer uh, british or german or french style cradle to grave national health care system i think it would it would transform america within a generation number three there's not that much wrong with america clay you know wouldn't you want to wouldn't you want to do something about the second amendment as a you you said that american mayhem yes. is one okay. of the most significant but, uh, issues again trying to be fair i understand that America has this vision of itself as being a frontier country. And that's partly the reason why it needs its guns. It's not just a case of um, having a standing militia because you never know what the government might do or the British might turn up again. Um, But then uh, you look at Canada, which is very much a frontier country, and they don't have the problems, you know, that you have with with shootings periodically, though there was one a, a couple a couple of weeks ago. But that's the exception that proves the rule. That 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 was the shock about it. However, um, I, I use the example of Canada for two reasons. Number one, to illustrate that this is a culture almost exactly the same as your own, but they don't have this problem with guns. But then also, I did um, a couple of years ago. Um, friend of mine in Canada invited me out to his ranch and uh, we didn't go hunting but he he, ha- he has guns and uh, we shot some cans in in the back of his space and I understood the outdoor lifestyle so I'm not going to say um, that America should become like Britain or, or Europe and there should be no guns at all but there needs to be 
much less. And I would leave that discussion uh, for Americans actually to have. But but it's a discussion which America has to say that is that Second Amendment as it stands, is it worth 20,000 Americans being senselessly killed by each other every year, year on year? Royfield, we've just got a couple of minutes left and I want there's more I want to get accomplished here. But number one, let me ask you this. I mean, when you look as a as a thoughtful outsider at American life, which do you find more um, upsetting? America's internal problems and you, uh, the one that you, you seem to be pointing to most is the maldistribution of wealth and opportunity. So America's problems domestically or or America's place in the world, America's empire, its uh, its wars against the Arab people, its its resource wars, uh, having bases in 730 or 40 bases in almost every country in the world. Are you more upset by America's uh, replacement of the British Empire or by America's internal failures? I'm more upset about your internal failures because I think being somebody of colour um, – it's very easy to say that the problems to do with poverty are to do with class and a lack of opportunity. But there is an ongoing stain uh, within American culture, and not just in within American culture. It, it, it's arguably there in, in British culture to a certain degree, um, where there has been a certain redlining of people of colour. So I would say that it's the most important or the most boring thing for me looking at American society is the fact that your rich are getting rich at an unprecedented rate. You know, he's going back to the days of Carnegie and robber barons and the the American middle class, your vaunted middle class, has now been overtaken by the Canadian middle class by any kind of indices. There's a great Luxembourg report about it. And your poor is becoming almost elements of it are becoming an underclass. And this is a first world country. As I said at the very start of our conversation, the the world's first country and it is fraying badly at the edges. But I love many things about America and I'm profoundly optimistic. Uh, we're down just to a short time. Where can people find your podcast and where can they reach out to smack you for the terrible things you've said about us? <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter uh, and it's Royfield spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. I do a podcast entitled Mid-Atlantic, which is out on iTunes. So it's Mid-Atlantic Show. Uh, you can find us on, on the web there. I also do How Jamaica Conquered the World. And I interviewed um, a great son of America, General Colin Powell, um, last year. And a great episode with him where he spoke to me about his life and the fact that he's of Jamaican parentage. So that's How Jamaica Conquered the World, where I look at the spread of Jamaican cultural influence throughout the globe since 1945. And then for my sins, I write and do digital strategy and uh, as much as I can try and travel around the world. And you write for the Huffington Post. I write for the Huffington Post. So I di I um, was also the correspondent for a publication which is now closed called Blotter and I covered a lot on American politics, um, specifically with the last, last election. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why I love America. You have a president who is who is from a visible minority you know so don't get me wrong i think there's a lot of things wrong with america but there's a lot of things right you know whatever you want to say about obama's po policies and whatever i want to say about lack of opportunity uh, to do with the poor in america you're still the first major developed country to have a visible minority as your head of state excellent that's where we have to leave it i've so enjoyed this conversation we're certainly going to get mail about this one royfield come back and be the host on another program we didn't even really begin to talk about jefferson and race in the united states you've been listening to the thomas jefferson hour we'll see you next week for another exciting edition of the thomas jefferson hour the Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public Radio. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. 
President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author, Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any past show for a $12 donation, please call 888-828-2853. Again, that number is 888-828-2853. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.org and on iTunes. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.org. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.